to the 28th edition of the Travelling Tube Radio Show, a podcast all about bike touring and bike culture. Coming up in this show, we talk to Rob Lilwall about the journey that inspired his new book, Cycling Home from Siberia. That's 30,000 miles and three years on the road. Phew! We also find out what happens when you shoot a cyclist in the head, which is not very much at all apparently, and we're touching on some bike touring concerns. howling outside. It's been raining a lot and it doesn't really feel like bike touring weather. It's pretty typical for November, I think, but you know, all this inclement weather doesn't stop the local cyclists. Just this morning I saw them going to the market, to work, to school in the very early dawn. The red lights on the backs of the bikes fill up the streets in the city here by 7am or so. I get the feeling that despite having biked around the world, I've gone a bit soft over the last couple of months. If I don't have to crawl out of my tent in the morning and go somewhere, and it's raining, I don't really want to get on my bike. Maybe I'm not quite up to Dutch cycling standards. I think I'm going to have to work on that, on my hardiness over the next few weeks, and I'll let you know how it goes. I might take a bit of inspiration from Kent Peterson. I found Kent's blog after one of our readers, Mike Kearsley, sent me a link to it. And this week, Kent published a post called Excuses to Ride. The excuse in this case is the email Kent sends to his friends, suggesting a ride. The email is the perfect thing to get him out on the road on a wet and windy Monday. Kent writes, By sending an email such as this, I'm on the hook. I've crafted an excuse to ride. I have to ride because I set the damn sequence in motion. Looking at the forecast for today, I knew it would be windy and wet and too damn easy to stay at home if I didn't have an excuse. I'm counting on my friends. Kent later points out that the best excuse for riding in the wind and rain is that it's the only way to find out what you need and what you want enough to take with you for riding in the wind and the rain. A fair point, I think, for anyone who likes to ride their bike and words to think about as winter sets in. If you want to read the full post, go to kentsbike.blogspot.com. Now it's time for a bit of cycling news. Our first story frankly makes me, and I'm sure a lot of cyclists, more than a little hot under the collar. Last July, Charles Diaz, a fireman in North Carolina, tried to shoot a cyclist in the head because he was angry when he saw a man riding with his three-year-old child on a busy road. The bullet stuck in the cyclist's helmet, so the biker survived, and Diaz was charged with attempted murder. This week, he was sentenced to, wait for it, just four months. How come? The attempted murder charge was dropped to assault, and even though the new term normally sees people put away for two to three years, Diaz's sentence was all but wiped out on the grounds of his good character and military service. I'm still trying to figure out how shooting someone in the head shows good character. On a brighter note, a new study published in The Lancet this week says governments should spend less money on roads and more money on making walking and cycling the most direct, convenient, and pleasant options for most urban trips. Pedestrians and bikers should also get priority over cars and trucks at intersections. This will help CO2 emissions and avoid millions of deaths as people breathe better air, get more exercise, and eat healthier, according to the study. Let's hope governments are listening. I'll put links to both of those stories in the show notes. Now it's time for this week's feature interview, and what a story it is. In September 2004, British cyclist Rob Lilwall put himself and his bicycle on a plane and flew all the way to Magadan in eastern Siberia. 
There he began a journey back to England that would take him over three years through some of the toughest terrain and conditions imaginable. Not only did Rob tackle Siberia in the winter, he also rode through the jungles of Papua New Guinea, Tibet in winter, and Afghanistan. And he's recently published a book about the trip, Cycling Home from Siberia. I had the pleasure of talking to Rob recently, and I began by asking him why he chose to start in such a harsh climate. And I often ask myself that, why did I start in Siberia? It was a number of things kind of coming together. My big plan was to cycle across Asia. That was where my main interest was. And I thought rather than starting from England and pedaling off into the world, it would be more fun if I started as far away from home as possible and tried to ride back to London. So I kind of got my map out and looked for all the far eastern points in Asia. And I looked at, you know, Shanghai and Tokyo, places like that. And then I saw this little city right on the northeast of uh, Russia and Siberia. And I thought, wow, that looks really amazing, really epic. So I thought that's the place to start. And it kind of just worked out that I was ready to start in uh, September which was, you know, a few weeks before the winter arrived. So that was that was why I started then. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, I just had to kind of make the relevant preparation so that I'd, I'd be able to get through the winter and stay alive. It's one thing to plan it when you're looking at your atlases and you're talking to people and finding out what you need to do and what you need to get. But when you actually get there and you can feel the chill in the air, that must have been, was it scary? Was it exhilarating? How did you feel when you realized that now I, now I actually have to do this thing I've been talking about for so long? Yeah, no, I think that's a great way to put it, a, a real mixture of being scared and feeling very exhilarated. Um, and I was actually doing the first part of the journey I was doing with an old friend called Al Humphreys. And um, so I was with a friend and he's a pretty experienced adventurer himself. So um, it was good we had each other to kind of try and encourage. And he was actually a lot braver than me. So he was encouraging me, come on, let's just get going. We'll be OK. And uh, we bought ourselves, you know, lots of warm clothes. And often, especially when I was just set off, I'd start imagining all the terrible things that might happen to me. So I was pretty frightened. And the Russians uh, were very friendly, but they weren't short of pessimism either. They kept telling us we were going to freeze to death or, you know, be eaten by bears or something like that. So, yeah, it was a lot of fear. But in the end, I think we just thought, let's just get started and, and see what happens. And when you actually set off and you had a few days under your feet or under your wheels, as it were, um, was it as scary as everyone told you? Or is it enjoyable cycling in Siberia in the winter? Was there anything nice about it? Yeah, well, we had a, the first few days, it was autumn, probably a bit like a European autumn. So, you know, temperatures hovering down towards zero, but not quite zero. So we did have a, literally probably about a week of just sort of cool temperatures where we could get used to putting our tent up and spending all day cycling. But then the winter really did start to arrive and the temperature was kind of dropping a few degrees every day, it felt like, and the snow arrived. And yeah, it was a learning curve. I guess it was just a really steep learning curve, especially just things like ice on the roads meant that we were our bike tires kept slipping out from under us and we kept falling off several times a day. So things like that were the initial things we were learning. And then just adapting to cycling in the cold, you just have to start doing everything very quickly. So you only stop for a two-minute break, eat a chocolate bar, keep going, and don't stop long enough to uh, start getting really cold. It almost sounds stressful to me. It, did, you, did you eke some enjoyment out of it? or? Yeah, I think we did. There was a lot of stress hanging over us. I think especially the first, the first half of Siberia, we were, we were heading really into the wilderness, and there was this 
chunk uh, lovely about 500 miles about three weeks in we, there was a 500 mile stretch which was seriously empty with on our map there were kind of no houses no cars the roads barely existed and that would be the bit where we were really on our own so that was very ominous kind of thought we were approaching but at the same time it was spectacular you know the beauty is you know second to none really you know completely empty icy landscapes mountains and frozen rivers and uh, forests and things it was extraordinary so yeah a mixture of yeah this kind of stress and as you said before exhilaration was was pretty high as well and you actually went swimming when you were in Siberia yeah we um decided i think it was when we as we were setting off the day we set off from magadan which is by the sea we thought you know we should at least go for a final swim and it, this was still september so it wasn't it was kind of autumn weather so we jumped in the sea to the amusement of the local russians and then set off cycling and then i think it was about five days later we hadn't neither of us had had a shower because we'd been camping and there was this kind of cold river next to where we were camping and i thought i need a wash so i jumped in the river that morning and I, then I was boasting the rest of the day to al that i was winning the swimming competition and so then the next night he it was the lake was actually frozen over so he had to break the ice in the lake and jump in so then it was two all and then i think we decided it was an honorable draw and stopped the competition then. <laughs> when it got down to minus 40 you weren't tempted to hack down a meter into the <laughs> well not really, no. <laughs> so what happens in those conditions? Do you just go dirty for weeks on end, or were you getting to, to hotels occasionally where you could have a shower? Or Yeah, in well, Siberia was one of the places it was certain showers, because even like if we stayed with the local people, if it was just if sometimes we came across a small weather station or a small gold mine or something where we'd be invited to stay the night, and I think those guys probably just don't shower all winter just because they cut down enough water it takes a lot of energy obviously to melt water but every every couple of weeks we would come to a bigger settlement where maybe there was showers and things so we, we could wash every couple of weeks properly and then the rest of the trip apart from perhaps places like tibet or the the big empty plains of australia in most countries i went through i would be getting to a city or staying in a local hotel or something probably every week at least so I didn't go for like months and months without showers. When I was looking over your website I noticed that although you did what could be considered roughly a classic route home from the east to the west a lot of cyclists have followed through many many of the countries that you went through places like Australia and Southeast Asia and Central Asia but one of the things that I noticed is that you seem to seek out places that were particularly difficult. You went through Tibet in the winter. You went through Afghanistan. Why do you think you're drawn to, to things like that that are extreme even within the, the cycling community? I think the reason I went through some of these more extreme places like Tibet in winter and Afghanistan and, and also somewhere like Papua New Guinea was another pretty extreme place was it's partly a practical reason that those places just lay on my path and... So I could either kind of catch a plane to go over them or I could just go through them. And I always wanted to take on the challenge and go through them. And it, was, it wasn't always my kind of things like Tibet. So I, I did in the winter, which is a lot harder than in the summer. Uh, but that was just a practical reason I happened to arrive there in the winter and I didn't want to wait around for months for the summer to arrive. And I think, you know, there is a, I think I'm sure a lot of cyclists can relate to that kind of draw to go somewhere a bit more extreme even though it's frightening, like Afghanistan, you know, extraordinary country, amazing history, somewhere we always hear about, but it's it's, it's unusual to see it for ourselves. So um, there was just a real draw, I felt, to Afghanistan, and it was a shortcut, so it was a quicker way to get through. 
than going the other ways. It's one thing to have a, a draw to a country, but it's another thing to actually do it, to put yourself in that situation. Did you never think, gee, maybe I'm being a bit silly here or this is a bit out of my depth? Yeah, I constantly thought I'm being very silly and this is way out of my depth. But, but I, I think I, I, always, I always, and I always said this to my family as well when I was telling them where I was going, that I, I took calculated risks. I felt like I wasn't just thinking, well, hey, let's go to Afghanistan, forget what everybody else says. I, I did a lot of work and emailing friends of friends who worked in, for example, in, in Kabul. I had some friends of friends there and I emailed them, asked for lots of advice. And I took all the kind of precautions I could, I felt, to, to make it as safe as possible. So, for example, Afghanistan, it was the one country on the whole journey where I actually caught a bus for about 200 miles in a particularly risky stretch of Afghanistan. And then I made sure in Afghanistan, I always cycled during the day. So I'd get up really early, like five in the morning, and cycle you know, through the day, try and stop well before it was dark. I never camped. I always had a, either a kind of local headman who I could stay, you know, somebody important in the local community who could look after me, or I stayed with an NGO every night. So I did take some precautions. I wasn't completely like, oh, who cares about the risks? Let's just go for it. I, I felt the risks necessary. I took what precautions I could, and then I, I went for it. So that, that, that was kind of how I saw myself doing it. And I did feel like it was getting a bit, it was, it was a kind of scary to look at how I had gradually been taking bigger and bigger risks as I went along. And I said to myself, after Afghanistan, you know, that's it. You can't, you can't keep taking a bigger risk. It did feel a bit like I was getting addicted to bigger and bigger crazy things to do. So, I, you know, I thought, oh, shall I go through Iraq next? And then I thought, no, no, well, let's just stop with Afghanistan and, um, and take the easy route after that. So you do draw the line somewhere. <laughs> yeah, it's easy to start thinking once you survive one scary place you think it's easy to kind of think oh I'm invincible or whatever and I think a lot of adventurers through the centuries have made just that mistake of you know surviving one risky thing and then doing another one and eventually very often it kind of catches up with you I think if you if you don't draw the line. And you did most of your trip alone I realize that you started with Al as your partner but at, at one point you split ways and then for most of the rest of the trip you were alone can you talk about that traveling solo and, and whether that was a good thing or was it sometimes frustrating that you didn't have someone to share moments with or maybe talk difficulties over with? How do you think being alone affected your journey? Yeah, I think there are a lot of pros and cons of traveling with a friend compared to being alone. I think obviously with a friend, it's, I think you can have a lot more fun. You can share the, the highlights and the, the, you know, when you see a beautiful view or when you having a laugh, you know, it's, it's more fun with somebody. And I think in some respects, you're, you're obviously safer if you injure yourself or you're ill with someone to look after you, things like that. Lots of, lots of great things about traveling with somebody. But then I think there are also advantages of traveling alone. I think you have a very intense experience. You, you know, you really, you can't just start chattering to your friend about what you miss about home. You have to kind of engage with the communities you're going uh, through and the, the landscapes you're going through even more. And in some ways, I think you're more likely to be invited to stay. I, I was looked after tremendously well. If anybody who reads my book, I think, will see. You know, often I was invited to stay with people in all sorts of places, almost every week of the trip in pretty much every country. Total strangers invited me to stay. And that was a wonderful experience. I think you're more likely to be invited to stay, maybe, if you're on your own because you're just this kind of solo nomadic dude cycling through and I think people think oh wow let's invite this guy in well if there are two of you 
partly for practical reasons because there are two big cyclists to kind of all their stuff you have to fit into the into your house um and partly yeah i think maybe people just i don't feel threatened by a solo cyclist that they'll they'll invite you in so i think that's one of the big advantages of going alone is you, you do get invited to stay even more when you look back on your trip i know that it's hard to summarize a three-year trip but when you look back on it would you say that there's one special moment that stands out for you from this trip Ooh, um I'm, it's hard to sort of pick one moment. I mean, there were a lot of special moments. But I think some of the highlights, some of the, the obvious kind of real super exhilarating moments were just after I'd survived a really difficult place where I'd been very nervous about. So, for example, when I got on the ferry from Siberia taking me to Japan and I knew I'd survived, even though I'd sort of half expected I might not, um, I knew I was alive. I was going to Japan, this extraordinary country I'd never been to before. And I just thought, wow. And when I was cycling across the Friendship Bridge, which takes you out of Afghanistan into Uzbekistan, you know, I was still alive. My whole life kind of opened up before me again. So those were really uh, special moments along the way. And you experienced quite a lot of kindness along the way from, from local people. Can you tell us about one or two of the friends that you met? Or? Yeah, I mean, that... Um, that was amazing and something I'd, I'd not really anticipated before the trip. I, I sort of thought I'd be sleeping in my tent most nights and then in some countries where the hotels were cheap, I thought maybe I could stay in a, the, the occasional hotel. Uh, but it turned out, as I, as I just mentioned, almost every week of the journey, um, complete strangers were, were inviting me in. And I mean, just one little example, it was, it was the first time it happened really in Siberia. We were the temperature just started to really drop. So it dropped from it being kind of minus eight the week before, and now suddenly it was more like kind of minus 25 or something. So the temperature was getting really cold, and Al and I were cycling deeper and deeper into the wilderness. And uh, we were kind of getting ready to put our tent up one night, and we saw this little gathering of porter cabins by the rows with a little bit of smoke coming out of the chimney. So we stopped and knocked on the door, and it was kind of opened. The door opened with this gruff-looking Russian guy who sort of shouted something at us in Russian. We couldn't understand it. And then he sort of more or less grabbed us and pulled us through the door into this little hut. And inside this hut, there were all these other gruff looking Russians. And it turned out they were coal miners and they were on their tea break in their port cabin. And they, you know, they're really kind of real men, tough men, but they were really friendly and they made us sit down and they kind of gave us lots of soup and bread and made us eat lots. And then they insisted we stay the night in there because we had to work in the coal mine that night. So we stayed in their beds in this nice warm hut. And then the next morning, you know, they made sure we had lots of breakfast and um, sent us on our way again. So that, that was the first time it happened. It was a real surprise. But over the, the following few years, maybe not in quite such extreme uh, conditions as that, um, but whether it was in a village in Papua New Guinea or just... You know, even in Australia, once I was filling up my water bottles in a petrol station and this guy was filling up his motorbike with petrol and he invited me to stay the night. So things like that happened, you know, all the time. And I almost came to take it for granted, which is crazy, really. But it was it was amazing, um, the, the wonderful people I met. Now that you're back, has it been hard over the last two years to, to settle back into life in, in ordinary England after all that adventure and all those experiences that you have? Yeah, it has been hard. Um, I think the first few months especially were very hard. I think that's quite normal for somebody who's spent a lot of time away overseas. When they come back, it takes a while to adjust. I think partly it was because I didn't really have a plan of what I was going to do when I got back. I'd spent three years with this very tangible goal of trying to cycle home. And then when I finally got home, I thought, uh, 
why was I trying to get here? You know, three years to get here, but what 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 was I trying to do? Why was I, why was I trying to get back to England? Um, so that that was tough, just not knowing quite what I was going to do. And then after a few months, as I kind of you know began to get into a routine, get some work going, um, you know, got used to seeing my friends and family again. It, it gradually got easier, and it's fine now. But I think, in a way, I think a trip like that it does it does change you, and it's hard to know how it changes you. And, I spent the whole book trying to sort of work out how, how has this trip changed me. But I think it has kind of stirred a deep discontent in me, in a way, if I put it that way. Wanting to, to grasp the beauty of being alive and, and to experience that to the full. Um, and I think that, in a, in a way, that's not a bad thing to have a bit of discontent because it kind of motivates me to throw my whole heart into life a bit more. Uh, but in many ways, yeah, in many ways, I, I feel very adjusted now and I'm recently married so that's all wonderful new adventure I'm embarking on now so sort of following on from that what would you say the overriding message of the trip is is it that life is short and we should live it to the fullest or or is it more than that yeah I think before the trip set off I before I set off it had always felt like life would kind of go on forever and I think it was on the trip partly through reflecting on the fact that maybe I would die as I was cycling through particular places and that really got me thinking about, you know, the fact that, yeah, I will die one day, um, which I've never really contemplated before. And also, yeah, life does pass by. And in the same way, the trip, when I was in the middle of the trip, a year and a half in, it just felt like the journey would never end. I still had years to go. Uh, but it did end. Um, and, it, you know, it's amazing. I couldn't believe it. I actually finished it. And, uh, you know, two years later, here I am still. Um and in the same way, life, in a way, when I think about life, I think, oh, it's, you know, it feels like it's not going to end, but it will do. <laughs> um, so I think that, that is, yeah, it's one of the conclusions I had. What it means to, you know, live life to the full, I don't know. I guess that's something we all have to work out for ourselves. And I'm always trying to work out, you know, what's, what's really important in life. What should my priorities be? And, and I think it can become quite self-indulgent if we're trying to live life to the full. So that's, yeah, it's a, it's a big question, isn't it? How, how do we live life to the full? And, you know, things like getting married, having a family, I think that's a, a, a fantastic and very worthwhile way to live life. I don't think you know, all of us need to kind of go off on a crazy trip necessarily. But. <laughs> You're now uh, doing a lot of inspirational talks to schools and organizations about your trip. And I'm just curious what you would say to inspire other cyclists to take off and, and do their, their dream journey. Because a lot of us think about it, but it's actually a very big step to get out there on the road. Yeah, I'd say just really practically um, two bits of practical advice. This would be for people who maybe haven't done a lot of adventuring before is maybe start off by doing a couple of shorter trips, um, maybe for even just a weekend, to pack your bike up and head off for the weekend and camp in a field and come back and maybe go with a friend as well because it's a bit easier to start off with a friend. And then maybe try a week-long trip and go off for a week, just take your map and a tent and sleep, sleep wild and go off for a week and see how you find it. And then you're ready for starting to do something big and I think it's it gets a bit easier if you do a couple of little ones it's a slightly easier start um that's what I'd recommend because I've done a few shorter trips before I think a, a second thing I'd, I'd say is um just be slightly wary of the pessimists um who tell you that you're completely mad or that what you're doing is 
far too dangerous and because inevitably there will be friends or, or family maybe in your life who will uh, who maybe will have read a newspaper report about one of the countries you're going through and this newspaper report explained how several people have been killed last week and it's a very dangerous country and so your friends and family will, will probably tell you some of these stories which will sound very frightening and it might make you think twice about whether you should go go on this trip and but it's, it's definitely worth listening to people's advice and so on but just maybe take with a pinch of salt when people tell you too many pessimistic stories listen to them and sort of assess them but I think often we can get very frightened listening to the, the headline reports of all the bad things that happen in the world and it can put us off but actually often those, those things aren't representative of, of the country as a whole so just yeah be prepared to go despite the pessimism because you will uh, encounter quite a lot of people along your journey and when you set off telling you it's far too dangerous and so on. Rob, I'd like to thank you very, very much for being with us. Thank you very much. Rob Lilwall. And if you'd like to get your hands on a copy of Rob's book, you can check out his website at www.cyclinghomefromsiberia.com. It's gotten some great reviews and it would make a wonderful Christmas present. Well, that's about it for this edition of the Travelling to Radio Show. But before we go, I want to let you know about a new survey we're running on the site. It's all about your bike touring concerns, so go to www.traveling2.com and tell us what worries you the most when you're planning for a tour. So far, getting hit by a car is the biggest concern people seem to have, but others worry about not having enough money, personal safety, and, my favourite so far, companions who whine. We're going to collect responses for at least another week, and then we'll tally up the results and start a series of articles that will offer tips for dealing with these fears. But we can't help you solve them if we don't know what your worries are, so go on and vote. You can even add an answer of your own if you don't think any of the ones up there already fit your concerns. And of course, if you have any feedback on the show or maybe you'd like to be interviewed for a future podcast, drop us a line. You can use the Contact Us form on the site or send me an email directly at us at travelling2.com. Until next time, tailwinds and happy cycling.